I think that a ton of early stage folks get overwhelmed by the number of channels they think they have to invest in, and they don't. You can really kick butt with one, literally just one. That was Rand Fishkin, the co-founder of Spark Toro, and these are the Brandwagon interviews. Rand, thank you so much for being here on Brandwagon. I'm so excited you're here. I am thrilled to be here. For those who don't know Rand, you have an incredible career story, in, in my humble opinion. Yep. Um, but founder of, of Moz, yep. founder of Spark Toro, best-selling author. You've been on Oprah, obviously. <laughs> Te- um, technically. And I was trying to think, like, how many people do you think you've actually spoken to? And I want to. I have a guess. Like human beings? Human beings. Like, I, And my guess... Which I, now as I'm about to say, it feels like it's going to be low, but I was going to guess like 30,000 people. I don't know. I think if, if there's a state fair and there's a you know, jar of M&Ms and you have to guess how many are in there, I think that's a pretty good. You think so? Yeah, that sounds reasonable to me. I mean, I was at Inbound this morning, probably talked to uh, close to 100 people there. Throw another 100 on, throw 600 on a right? panel, so if boom. You, it happens fast though. Yeah, if you do a three or four of those a month every, pretty much every month for 17 years, 16 17 years. years. Yeah. So, yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. That gets up there. Yeah. That's a lot. Of, that's a lot of lives to touch. Especially for an introvert. My God. <laughs> <Oof>. <laughs> Do you have that? I don't know. If, I don't know if you get that where if you go to an event and you have kind of the, whatever, you're on the panel mm. or you're giving your talk, you get off stage and then there's kind of a line of people to talk and whatever social time, mixers. Uh, I do not get stage nervous at all. I can walk on a stage, doesn't matter how big the audience is, I'm fine, cameras, no mm-hmm. problem. But that line of people afterward, really? my heart gets pumping. Oh, wow. I get like the, oh God, oh God, oh God. I, I just want to retreat to my hotel room. That's wild. Because I for me, I get like, I get nervous before I go up. Yeah. And it's like, I've learned over the years, like for, for me, it's practice. Like I, I practice until I feel like, and I can only speak about something I care about or it doesn't work. Yeah. But I speak about something I care about in practice, I feel really good. But there's a line, that sounds great. Doesn't doesn't phase me at all. Man, I don't, yeah, I don't know what it is. I, I really have trouble with the kind of that one-to-one interaction. I mean, I feel like when you're on stage as an introvert, you are basically just having a long rambling conversation with yourself. Yeah. There's okay. no sort of back and forth, um, the risk of things going way off script yeah. is low. But yeah, and in person, I just feel like I'm I'm getting studied and judged. Wow, that's and so interesting. Like if I forget someone's name or if I say the wrong thing, I don't know. That's which, which doesn't really happen, but yeah. still. Wow. Huh. And but you, I mean, you have been for a long time. You've been giving these talks. Talk to now we're certain it's thirty thousand people. <laughs> and you also have done whiteboard Fridays. You've been in tons of videos, and you're really great on camera. Like oh, thanks. I think you are just so natural with who you are. I mean, we can make this the exception if, if you, you want. want. <laughs> yeah, look right at the camera. <laughs> make this the exception. <laughs> how and do you think that's like an innate thing? Is that something that you've trained up? Is that something like? How did, because so many people struggle with this. They struggle with, they want to get on camera. That's true. They want to make a video and then they get that feeling of like fear that they're not going to be able to do it. Like how have, have you had to overcome that? And how do you, how do you think about that? Gosh, I think that much like the stage presence, um, I don't, I have not thought about it in depth. I have certainly had a lot of practice, you know, you can go back to early Whiteboard Fridays, 2007, 8, 9. The quality is low. I'm not great on camera. Uh, but I have enough to talk about, and the subject matter is interesting and useful enough that it, it roughly carries the day. And it was early enough in terms of online video that there wasn't a lot of quality stuff out there. So but You were also willing to put yourself out there. Like you were, you were able to get across that threshold. And practice is what does it. Okay. Right? So, you know, you, you practice, you watch yourself. I think that's probably what did it, right? I watched myself on camera every week for two or three years, and I thought, 
I don't like how I say um and uh between every few words. I need to work on that. Let me hire a speech coach. Let me see if I can improve that. I don't like the way I look in this particular shirt. I don't like the, what do you call that effect? Moir effect? Yeah. The blurring? Yeah. Right? Moiring. Moiring. <laughs> Moiring. <laughs> They'll uh, know, <laughs> right? I'm sure, they, I'm sure the crew is nodding like, yeah. "Oh, those sons of bitches." Yeah. Now that, that. <laughs> now that you've said that, I don't know how to pronounce it anymore. I've lost my ability to say. It. Uh, but those, you know, those kinds of things, I yeah. think, iteratively make you better and better at it. So I, I think it's certainly true that I had a little bit more natural talent on camera than maybe some folks starting out, but certainly nothing like professional actors and folks who do this for a living. But you did you did say something in there that I think is interesting, which can be, I mean, you kind of glossed over it, but you had stuff to talk about. Yes. And it was for a very specific audience, right? Like it was deep knowledge for a specific audience. And, and super nerdy, right? Yeah. It's super nerdy, deep SEO, uh, technical and creative side, trying to help people understand how to rank their websites in Google at a time when not many people were talking about that. And there was a lot of secrecy and misleading information. Uh, and I think that that makes a huge difference, right? To your point around having passion. If you have passion about something, I think that shines through. It can overcome nervousness. It can overcome poor performance. It can o overcome you know, a bad hair day, whatever it yeah. is. Yeah, if you really care. Yeah, when you really care and that shines through and you have unique information to share with people, it works. It's funny you say that. It reminds me of, uh, I took this like one summer, I took this, you know, I went to school for film. Yeah, yeah. And I took this acting and directing class. Ooh. And so I'm taking this acting class and we're going through this scene from a David Mamet play and I am acting. And I like, basically as I was talking, like a little piece of spit like flew out of my mouth and like hit the uh, director. And I was like, I'm so sorry, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And he's like, that's the best you've done. And I was like, I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, you look like you care so much that you're like, you're so fired up and you're so in this that like you should, if the spit's coming out of your mouth, you're probably doing it right. I mean, have you ever sat in the front row at a theater? Yeah. They are all flying. The saliva is just going <laughs> crazy up there. But it's, it's a simple lesson, I think, of like, actually, if you actually care about what you're talking about, yeah. that, yeah. that, uh, overcome so many other things. I can overcome bad lighting. That can overcome, overcome a bad hair day. Yeah. Um, just that deep care. Yeah, and I think probably one of the biggest challenges that folks have had, I know I have certainly had it leaving Moz and kind of starting this new phase of my career in a new company, is figuring out where does that passion lie? What am I going to put that toward? How do I channel things that I truly care about into things that other people will care about and will pay attention to and that actually help my business. And finding a combination of those is really hard. Yeah. I, I think that's why there's so few um, so few features that work well. So little, uh, especially in B2B, right? Maybe B2C there's more, but especially in B2B marketing, there's so few forms of high quality information and entertainment that you can discover. Yeah, because the people who are making it act have to actually be passionate. And and it, it is funny, though, because I think it's, they have to be passionate and they have to be focused on that niche, right? Like, yeah. they have to be really, really, really zeroed in on that deep, nerdy stuff. Yeah. And that's when, hopefully, if you're actually passionate about it, that's what you want to talk about. And that's also what their customers want. But it is, it can be scary if you're not doing that or to get comfortable, I think, going that deep. No doubt. So, as you know, we have a big launch coming up here uh, at Wistia, October 2nd. Mazel tov. Thank you. Now, when this episode goes out, this launch will have just happened. So I, you've been through many big launches. Um, do you have any advice for me in this moment? <laughs> uh, so I will say the thing that has worked uh, most effectively for me in the last couple of years with big launches is to uh, tie the launch to a bigger message, a bigger discussion that's already happening in an industry or uh, in a lot of people's minds, it should probably create some controversy. Mm. I, I, when I've taken a controversial point of view, I've found that people are much more willing to amplify it. I will say positive and negative, but, but much more positive, right? Essentially, 
folks feel like this information, this product, this platform that Rand is espousing, that Wistia is espousing, this ties directly to something I also believe, and it is antagonistic to something that I oppose. And when you tie those together, launches tend to go extremely well, right? A lot of people pay close attention. So I've had this with a, a few content pieces recently. Um, I'm hoping to have it, knock on wood, uh, with SparkToro as well. And and I suspect you're in a similar Well, state. yeah, that's the idea. I mean, so, um, you know, we're talking a lot about brand affinity and why brand affinity is so important. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's harder to compete in the world that we're in today. It's harder to stand out. We're going to get into all of this. Yeah. I know you're yeah. very, very passionate about these topics. I am, yeah. Um, and brand matters more, but it's not enough to be known. I think people have to have a connection. And so that's what we're talking a lot about. We're talking about Wistia's shift towards this, um, the tools that we're launching, all this kind of stuff. But one of the reasons I was so excited to have you here today is not only are you a dear friend, but like you have been focused on building brand affinity forever. Like I feel like <laughs> you are the poster child for this. You were like whiteboard Fridays and you're talking oh, yeah. about the early days, but for those who don't know, like the weekly video series that you were putting out is still being put out. Yeah. How absolutely. many years has it been? This will be 11, 12? 12 years. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. Longer run than Seinfeld. My God. That's crazy. Have you ever thought about that? No. <laughs> That's disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's just so crazy because it's, you know, it starts with you on camera, simple concept, getting in front of a whiteboard, yeah. teaching your heart out basically yeah. Yeah. every week, teaching everything that you are learning, putting information out into the world and letting people build a connection to you and have more brand affinity for you, but also Moz. And I think this was very unintentional in the early years, right? Yeah. Probably for the first five or six years that I was doing it, I did not realize that Whiteboard Friday was building a brand both for itself as a series and also for me as an individual human being as opposed to, oh, I'm just blogging but in video form. Yeah. And video has this special power to create a type of personality resonance that writing, although I love writing, does not. And you're a best-selling author, Simon. Yeah, well, <laughs> no, it's it's a really fair point. Yeah. Uh, books are a really interesting sort of side note to that, or maybe asterisk yeah. to that, because a book carries a certain type of weight that for some reason, especially a, a published book, yeah, yeah. A, a big five publisher published yeah. book, yep. tends to carry this authority that a blogger does not, which is not to say that's right or accurate, it's just societally true. And I don't know, I, I tend to find that the things that create those types of resonances that amplify you in a way that people perceive additional authority uh, have outsized impact. And so you started with Whiteboard Fry. I want to really dig in on yeah, that. Yeah. So you started that. What made you decide? Do you remember to like, like keep doing it to start doing it, and then what? And then because you said, well, we did it for two to three years, and I learned how to get better. That's an amazing level of commitment to something. So I would love to hear like what made you decide to do it, and then how did you keep doing it? Uh, real talk, I had been blogging for four years before that, every night, five nights a week, Sunday to Thursday night. Oh yes, Whiteboard Friday was a way for me to get an additional night off. Right? It was essentially, hey, I go into the office on whatever, Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday, and uh, film this video, which takes, Whiteboard Friday was almost always done in one take. Which is insane, With no way. editing. Yeah. yeah. And it was 10 minutes or less. So literally, it was maybe an hour total from you know, the start of the calendar block to the end of the calendar block to do it. It was during the workday. It meant I could go home on Thursday night and I had no blogging, no writing to do. So that was essentially my initial wow. kind of excuse, if you will. And then I think it was year two, we also realized that we could bring guests onto it. And that became another powerful motivation to keep it going because, hey, you, whoever, Danny Sullivan, you should come to Seattle and film a Whiteboard Friday. Danny Sullivan's now with Google, but at the time he, he ran you know, Third Door Media, Search Engine Lands, all, all these big media sites in the, in the space. 
Uh, someone from Google would be in town. We'd be like, hey, you should come on Whiteboard Friday. Uh, someone who was big in the industry would be in town. We'd tell them, hey, you should come and do your own Whiteboard Friday. So it became this vehicle for all these serendipitously positive relationship building and marketing impactful content. Yeah. So it, so it's it basically, makes sense to stick with it, yeah, right? So Even though... The weird part, I mean, the, probably the weirdest part of Whiteboard Friday, and I know you've seen this with other video investments and other marketing investments of all kinds, but for the first two years at least, maybe even the first three, Whiteboard Friday was our worst performing blog post every week in terms of total visits and traffic and uh, engagement. I think it did well on time on site, but that's just because it takes longer to watch the video. Uh, but the video watch rate was poor. It was not great. And it was not until probably 2010, so two and a half, three years into it, that it started to perform at the level of our better blog posts. And then by the time I left Moz, Whiteboard Friday was the most impactful piece of conf- uh, content that the company published every week. It drove the most traffic, got the most new free trials, got the had the highest correlation between engagement with the video and predictor of whether you stayed a paying Moz subscriber. So it was, you know, an, an amazing resource, but it took a long time to build. What advice do you give to somebody who, I mean, I think we live in a world, unfortunately, where people are looking for quick hacks. Yeah. And my quarterly numbers, my it, quarterly yeah, numbers. Yeah, and then and, and like in that, but in that world, like a brand is something that can last. Yeah. And, you know, like if you keep investing in a brand, it builds up more value, stronger connection that people have to it. It, you know, takes a time for that to go away. So like you're almost like accruing value in a brand over time with Whiteboard yeah, Fridays, right? That's exactly right. And I feel like, so the question is like, what advice would you give somebody who doesn't see that yet or can't figure out how to invest for the long term? Uh, a few things are true. One, many times when I'm asked to make this argument, it's to the wrong person. Like it's to the uh, an individual marketer, a person who's doing SEO, a person who's you know an agency or consultant, and it's not that they don't believe in this stuff. It's that their boss, team, client, C-suite, executive doesn't believe in it, and that I think that's a really hard thing to do. So when those folks come to me and say like, "How do I convince my sponsor, whoever that mm-hmm. person might be, to make these kinds of investments?" Uh, I I have found that the two most effective things are do it in such a way that you can prove one-time early value, right? So make one relatively small investment that you feel like will be able to help make the case for the next small investment, which will help make the case for the next small investment. Uh, And I've also found that competitive pressure is a great way to do this, right? If somebody, if you can show an executive, a a CEO, CMO, VP marketing, whatever, if you can show them that your competition is building a brand and you can show them the Google Trends chart of, well, hey, look, you know, here's six years ago when they started doing this, you can see that no one was searching for it. Nobody cared. It wasn't until year two. And now it's the thing that's kicking our butts out there. Oh, oh, now it resonates, right? If our competitor is beating us with this thing, now it makes sense to me. You know, and didn't you write a blog post? I'm going to say it was like 18 months ago or two years ago that was around um, building up like demand for your brand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can yeah. you can you tell tell our audience about that? Yeah, I mean, essentially, um, my my belief, especially in early stage startup land, which is kind of where I am right now. But even even if you're in later stage company, but you are trying to build up. Uh, demand for a new product or for something upcoming is that you can create that demand early on before the thing even exists. And by making those investments early and often and building up that affinity, uh, you at launch will have extraordinary experiences. Because people in their minds you know, human beings have this weird psychology, right? Where we like the things that we've already committed to liking. Yes. Right? So I I like Chris, therefore, if he introduces me to someone, I am primed to think that person is going to be a high-quality human being and I will want to spend time with them. And 
if Chris and I are enemies and he makes that same introduction. More likely to think this person is a new enemy. Right. Yeah. 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 And this is, I mean, this is exactly what we're going to be talking about the launch is a piece of this, which is, um, you know, you might have demand for your product. And you can go look at even the Google search of it and be like, oh, sure, there's right, right, right. 10,000 people searching a month. But like, if you can build demand for your brand, you can build that connection up front, you can far surpass that. Like the simple idea that you can actually do something remarkable, do something new, give people a piece of content. You can actually create demand for your yeah. brand that doesn't exist. It doesn't have to just satisfy the demand that's out there. And, and I think this is, this is one of the problems with my work in the world of search marketing for so long, right? Is I am so used to going, oh, lots of people are searching for X. How do I be the first result in X? Yeah. When I really need to break out of that box and think about, okay, being number one for a thing many people are searching for is great. What if I could be the brand that many people start searching for? What if I could grow the number of people who actually search for that brand and are aware of it? What if I could increase the preference, the brand preference that all people in my sector have to choose my result over someone else's result? Yeah. Well, it's funny as you're saying that, I'm thinking about products like Peloton. Sure. And it's like, I mean, okay, how many people are searching for Peloton at this moment? As compared to like electric bike. Yeah, like a home by home workout bike. Like it's like if you had evaluated that opportunity based on that demand, you would have missed the opportunity. And so it's almost in many cases it's like, well, where is there a place where there isn't a strong brand? Yes. And like well, actually where is there a fair amount? There might be a fair amount of demand out there, but like is there a strong it's, it's brand amongst them? Yeah, latent brand. Yes. Dem- sorry, latent demand, not expressed demand. Yes. And when you can find those, I think that's where you get tremendous startup opportunities, right? So with Wistia, uh, I think years ago, you identified the fact that, yeah, YouTube is all fine and well if you want to live in their ecosystem. But if you want to build your brand on your platform and not be subservient to whatever Google's whims are, um, you need a solution for that. And, And Wistia can be that solution, right? And now, you know, with things like uh, Soapbox, right, making recording video and screencasts and all this stuff way, way easier, right? Yeah. So easy that even I can do it, even though I'm now at a two-person startup yeah, and I yeah. don't have my own video person yeah. anymore, um, right? That That is serving real need. Yeah, that's the idea. And you nailed it. So switching gears, I know you're a little mad at Google, <laughs> just a, t- a teensy bit, and you've been talking to some members in Congress about this. Like, t- can you fill fill me in? What's going on here? Uh, okay, sure. Uh, all sorts of things. So I am upset with Google on a number of vectors. I still think, on balance, the company has done extraordinary things. I think the overwhelming majority of people who work there are wonderful people who have nothing but the best of intentions. But I think that some of Google's practices step over some uh, legal lines, step over some privacy lines, step over some ethical lines, uh, step over some tax evasion lines, right? So, uh, and I'm I'm not thrilled about that. I think there are a lot of people around the world and even inside Google who are pretty upset with that. I mean, geez, they did what did they did the Google walkout a few months ago, yes. right, to protest how Google was handling. Uh, NDAs, how they were handling uh, lawsuits against the company for sexual harassment and stuff like that, right? So it's a big company. They have plenty of problems and challenges. Uh, My discussions with folks in Congress and state's attorneys general and that kind of stuff has been generally around the antitrust investigations. So Google's being essentially looked at for have they used their monopoly power to illegally or unfairly compete in other sectors that are not search. And Chris, you tell me, I looked at a blog post from Casey Henry when he worked here at Wistia mm-hmm. from July of 2014. Mm-hmm. I bet you will remember this time. I, yes, I do, yes. Uh, well, okay, so like... What happened? Yeah, what happened? Yeah, you know, there was a moment when... Uh, basically, anyone could submit a video site map so that you could tell Google like which where the videos on your site are and what they're about, and they could be from any provider. Yep. Uh, so it's kind of fair game, and that was a powerful way of making sure that the, the algorithm understood 
that there was like content that people had invested in that was longer form that covered different topics. So people would rank well often. And you could use your video snippet and yes. your video You could be total shot. control of it. Yeah. Right. And then they flipped a switch, and the only thing that showed up was YouTube embeds. Um, and basically everyone lost control over, for a period of time, of like really directing where that traffic was going to end up. Because of course, in the search results, you see a YouTube embed, you click it, you're going to YouTube versus your own website. Yep. So I think this is a very interesting case, a, a nearly flawless case of what antitrust law would call using a monopoly in one sector to unfairly compete in another. Google knows that they are, you know, 90, what, 4% now of all the search traffic in the US, even more in Europe and, and uh, in other countries. And because they control that, they know that whatever videos they show in their search results are going to be the ones that get the overwhelming majority of traffic. Uh, Google being the web's largest refer by nearly an order of magnitude. I think they send about 65% of all web referral traffic. So if you switch from, hey, anyone can get into these video results to only our company that we bought and own, YouTube, is allowed to be in these results, you completely change the game. Right, you by giving that preference, you are oh, downgrading totally. yeah. the ability of Wistia, Anyone, of Vimeo, yeah. of any of right, yeah. any of your competitors and any of YouTube's competitors, right? Yeah. The the other video hosting sites like Daily Motion and um, or some of the other big ones back then. back in the day, like Vo and all yeah. those other things, yeah. right? And so all of those folks lose out. YouTube becomes the only one who can possibly win. Everybody who wants to rank in Google's results has to use YouTube. Yep. That is sketchy. That's yeah. super sketchy behavior. It's not like one day in July of 2014, it suddenly became the case that YouTube's results were way better than everybody else. No. That's not what happened. No. Google just simply said, hey, why are we promoting these other jamokes? Let's, yeah. let's put totally. our guy in there. Yeah. That is anti-monopolistic behavior. So I think there's, you have two options, right? As, like as, a, as an American, you can choose to believe one or two things. Either Google should be held to account just like any other big company should, or we shouldn't have antitrust and anti-competitive laws. And I, you know, I obviously think Google should be held to account, yeah. but I accept the fact that, that there are people who believe the opposite. What I struggle with is people who say, Google shouldn't be uh, held to account, but these laws should still exist. That one really yeah. jars my brain. Yeah, I can't understand it. Yeah, Totally. So this is, this is what I've been discussing with, uh, yeah, some of the folks in Congress, some attorneys, uh, some folks in the media, right? I've, I've been publishing on SparkToro about sort of the, the loss of clicks and traffic that Google is sending out. And what do you think is happening? I mean, that's a huge... Um, that was a perfect example of something we felt, obviously, yeah. um, and definitely impacted our business. Um, and over time, we discovered that there were certain things we could do that would help, and like they've they've added some ranking back in, but not the, to the degree that it was then. Yeah, right? I like it's just harder. Uh, so Dr. Pete from Moz did an analysis, and I think when he looked at the search results, it was something like four or five percent of all video uh, results came from not YouTube. Yes, ninety-five percent. Yeah. YouTube, right? So obviously, there's still not an even distribution. Although the very frustrating part is I think if Google's uh, attorneys were in front of Congress today or in front of the Department of Justice or whoever, right, the state's attorneys general, whoever is going to be leading up this investigation, I bet what they would say is, well, but your honor, 95% of videos are on YouTube. Yeah. Which is true now. And why is it true? It's because they gave themselves an unfair advantage early on. And I, I think this is the fundamental problem, right, is that Google can kind of cover up a lot of their anti-competitive activities with data about how they've won this market. Google Maps is another great example. Totally. Right? They, and what do, you think, what do you think for someone who's marketing in this world now? What should they be thinking? What, they, what should they be doing? I, I mean, I think, there's, I think there's three really important things to think about. One, anytime you can drive traffic back to your own website, and capture an email address, you should do that, right? Those yeah. two are the only channels you truly own and control. Building your, you know, building your property on rented land is a terrible idea. So 
look, a lot of people have had a ton of success building up their own YouTube channel, building up their Instagram presence, building up their Facebook page. I think that's high risk. Yeah. I think that's really, really high risk. I look five, six years ago when you know, Moz's Facebook page, Wistia's Facebook page got 10%, 15% engagement, right? We put up a post. 10% of the audience would see it. 10% of the audience yeah. would see it. Today, if you get 1%, you are you cheering. And you have to pay. <laughs> and and right? you have to pay. Well, basically, right? To get, yeah. to, and it's funny, one of those funny things of like, the rules have changed. And for those people who didn't make the long-term investment or you're not setting yourself up to make the long-term investment, you're going to pay the price later when, because when, they're constantly changing the rules. I mean, um, not to, yeah, now you're going to get me really fired up here, but no, not that of. I'm not fired up about that, but I don't know if you know that it, earlier this year, YouTube changed um, that like any embed that was outside of, any video that was embedded outside of YouTube, that they would always have related videos at the end. And it was like, I think February of this year that they made that change, which historically you could just turn it off and they're like, nope, you can't. And it's like, it's kind of crazy because- I, I, the, I watched a Whiteboard Friday with Brittany Muller last week on YouTube. Yeah. And the next recommended video was, uh, is the earth really flat? Well, I don't, is that why helpful? do I yeah, need yeah. to watch flat earth videos? Yeah. I have never previously expressed an interest in this. I mean, maybe I've uh, searched for it to do screenshots for presentations. Yeah. But that's just bonkers, that's right? That, that they're showing this type of related. This is what they just paid $170 million fine for this week from the FTC right, where they were essentially violating the privacy of children. They were tagging, you've watched these kids' videos, we're going to show you these other kids' videos. And the rabbit hole that kids could go down on it's YouTube really scary. is so scary. Super scary, yeah. Right? Like, I'm sure you and Alexandra worry about this. Oh, yeah, they don't know a lot about YouTube. That's not happening. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? That's just it's, completely, it's, yeah. completely yeah. freaky. So, uh, I mean, the first thing you should do is build your property on your own land, right? Build your traffic and traffic sources that send visits back to you and build your email list. Those are the two things that Google, Facebook, whoever can't take away from you. The second is use the platforms in the way uh, that best benefits your brand. And I think right now that is primarily brand affinity and brand impressions rather than traffic driving. Mm -hmm. So Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, Instagram, they're all biased against sending traffic back to your site. But you can get a lot of engagement, brand engagement on those platforms by playing to their rules for engagement. And their rules for engagement are essentially, if you keep, keep people here longer, if you help us addict and engage people on our platform, we will show your content more often. That's an algorithm you can learn how to play. Uh, and then the third thing is, if you've lost opportunity, like Wistia has, I really, really urge folks to tell their stories. Tell your stories loudly, publicly, show your evidence, show your analytics, show what happened when, whatever it was, Amazon or Facebook or yeah. Google. Change the your, game on you, yeah. Yeah, change the game on you in ways that are potentially anti-competitive or unfair because right now there are three simultaneous investigations, right? The 26 states attorneys general, the Department of Justice, and the United States Congress are all looking into anti-competitive activity. And they are finding, I know you think like, my small business, someone's going to care about that in Congress. Yes, they are looking for these specific examples. I promise you they are. Um, and if I can help make that visible to folks, I, I certainly tweet at me at Ranfish. I will get it in front of That's those awesome. sets of eyes because that, uh, that stuff is being paid attention to. It's sort of the right time politically to do that. Yeah, it's. I mean, if, when you think about how much commerce goes to the web now, and as the web is maturing, and like what these rules dictate, it is kind of amazing to think about the impact that it will have in the next ten years, of like yes. which companies are going to thrive and which ones are not. You know, it's it's really, really uh, enormously important. And this, I, I think, this is the other thing we we have generally been misled. Like, I, I was shocked when I saw the statistic. I, I found this while I was writing Lost and Founder that. Um, whatever, in 2017, there were fewer new companies started in the United States uh, essentially every year since 1978. So we are living through this timeline of the fewest startups ever, but it feels like there's a ton of startups. Yeah. It feels like we have this very healthy startup ecosystem. And I think that's sort of a media narrative and a, uh, an example bias 
right? We think like, oh yeah, there's tons of startups out there. Yeah. There's not. Well, they're also, I mean, they're also all online and they weren't before, which also means it's a different group of people who are starting them, I would think. Yep. Um, Different group of people starting them. Uh, They are employing a smaller percentage of the American workforce than ever before. So new companies and small companies employ far fewer people than they did in the you know, 1940s to 1980s. Uh, And so this fits exactly with, I think, the narrative that's been going around kind of the political world for a long time, the economic world, which is essentially concentration of wealth. Yeah. Right? So fewer new companies, fewer people employed by smaller businesses, more and more wealth and power going to a few people who own and control a few big businesses, more and more monopolies dominating, right? Web search in 2005. Yeah. You know, you have five players with 5% or more market share. Uh, you had four players with 20% or more market share. Now there's one. one right? Yeah. And, and this is true in all sorts of parts of the economy uh, and probably dangerous. Right? Yeah. Wealth concentration tends to lead to lots of historically bad things. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, it doesn't go well. <laughs> tends, tends not to go well even for the people who own all the capital. Yeah. Yeah. All right, switching switching gears a little bit because I feel like this comes through in everything that you're saying, but I want to dig in on one aspect here, which is, you know, when I think Rand Fishkin, I think great guy. Aww. I think I think um, it, Rand Fishkin style. You know, like you know your your way your way you're going to approach the world, and I also think unbelievably transparent and heartfelt. Like you have found this way, and right now as you're telling these stories, you are. You're incredibly passionate. It's clear to me that you're not holding back. And, <laughs> yeah. But that is how you were in Lost and Founder. Sure, That's yeah. how you've always been on like the Rand blog, on the Moz blog. That's how you've been in, in every talk I've ever seen you. I mean, I don't really know another So yeah, way but, to but my be. question is like, you've, I feel like you kind of set off a movement of transparency oh. where you, I remember the, the post that sticks out in my mind is when you talked about raising money and it didn't work. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, that is some crazy shit. Like the stories in there were just like wild and the stuff that happened to you definitely scared me away um, in a good way. I'm like, made me think twice about that type of money. Um, And then I watched like the Buffer guys come along and like kind of do what you're doing. And then I watched like the open startups thing come along. And now I've watched, it's like becoming more and more common for very early stage companies to disclose how much revenue they have, how much money they're losing. And I I actually see you as the person who kind of kicked this off. Um, And and I know you're being very humble because um, you are very humble. But like, how you have you always been this way? Did you grow up that way? Like, how did you get so comfortable with who you are and putting yourself out into the world? Gosh. Uh, so first off, it is all an illusion. I am not comfortable with myself at all. Um, <laughs> oh my god. Let's see. I I think I can be comfortable on camera. I can be comfortable on stage, um, and those give a perception that you know, behind the scenes in the machinery, everything's going smoothly. But that is not true, right? There's a lot of anxiety uh, inside my head. There is plenty of self-doubt. You know, you know, from reading Lost and Founder, I'm sure you know, right? I beat myself up a lot yeah. for the mistakes of the past. And, um, and I have plenty of regrets, too. So I, I think the transparency thing comes... But, like, even right now, when you're saying you're, you're saying this, you're like, yeah. Inside me, you can't see it, but like, I'm self-conscious and I'm yeah. anxious and whatever. Most people wouldn't say that. So, okay, the reason I overshare, yes. right? The reason okay. that, that the transparency exists is because I have such a distaste for secrecy. Okay, I have such a distaste for bottling things up and keeping them hidden. I, I think I have a deep-seated fear of people finding out something about me and so you just say it all so i just say it all right and it it's amazing it's like this deflector shield right the all the all the weapons all the attacks that come in if you have already been if you've put it out there yeah if you've owned it yeah if you've owned it 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 doesn't hurt not as much. It's anyway. just interesting because I find that, like, you know, I think of, I, I've actually talked to many folks who've been like, "How does Rand do this?" And because there's a, few, you know, the book I think really like kicked it off. Like, as you read the book, you're in your head. Like, yeah, yeah you are. You, you are, are in your head, head in the yeah. book. 
Um, but I like there's a lot of people who reference like your fundraising posts and like those cha- the challenges of yeah, when you set down. Like, world, yeah. It's just it's wild, and but people don't get that that is like core to your being. But I think it's also interesting because they're like, well, it's good marketing. Which, oh, interesting. Which it is also. Depends on the target. Depends on the target, sure. But in the sense yeah. of like, it's, it's, you're talking about something you care deeply about yeah. yourself. You're being really honest. You're sharing things that people don't usually share. And therefore, I feel like it's incredibly unique. And so it, it, it attracts people who also, they want to see themselves in that too. I think that's true. I mean, one of the things I would say that is truly awesome and wonderful about sharing yourself so openly is that you bring people into your world who share those same values, who find those things resonant. Um, I think that's how you and I became friends, yeah. right? That, that's how a ton of people that Geraldine and I know have come into our lives. And we are insanely lucky. I, I think luckier than most millionaires and billionaires because you know, we don't have millions or billions, but we have hundreds of people in, you know, almost any city we visit, we have people that we love, who love us. How, how awesome yeah. is that? Yeah, it's amazing. You cannot beat that in life. Yeah. That is, as far as I'm concerned, that's the apex. That's yeah. like 100 out of 100 score. But that cam- comes about because I share things so openly. Because And, and Geraldine does too, right? Through, oh, through yeah. her blog. Yeah. And I think that that, willingness to be vulnerable, right? Willingness to put things out there that you know other people are probably feeling too. Uh, It creates two things. Amazing friends and also some people who really don't like you. Mm. And and it's it's a great separator, right? I think that I think that there's a ton of folks out there who play this I don't know, have your cake and eat it too. Like I want to share things about myself, but only the things that I think will be bland enough so that everyone likes likes me. Which means no one likes it. Which means no one likes it. Yeah. Yeah. We had a guest on the show who was talking about haters. Yeah. And how like it's important to have haters because um, you know that like not everyone should like your product or not everyone should like your brand or your person. So if there's, and especially if I know that I don't like what that person likes. Yes. Uh, then there better be some damn haters, and that's a good sign. But I think it's interesting because even when you talked about like the advice about what a good launch looks like, yeah, it's the yeah. same thing, right? It's getting out there and telling that story, being and, on one side or another of a country, picking a side, yes, and being willing to, yes. Uh, well, I, I think that's a, a truly powerful thing. I it, there was this interesting thing someone uh, shared this morning. I think it was uh, Steve Davies, who's a, a UK PR and marketing. Uh, personality and and consultant, and he he tweeted something. I usually really like his stuff. Like mm. um, I found him through Twitter and like have followed him for a couple of years now. And he tweeted something to the effect of, "I think in a hundred years, no one is going to care about what your politics were. They're just going to look at what you did." And I thought to myself, "Gosh, I think that." The exact opposite of that is true. Mm. Like people are going to care very much, not necessarily what what your politics were, but what you stood for, mm-hmm. right? And how you were perceived to stand for or against certain things, right? And um, and even even now, when I look back at whoever, right, industrialists or entrepreneurs from a hundred years ago, like I I can't think of Walt Disney without also thinking like, well, amazing, but. Boy, that anti-Semitism ran yeah. strong. Not, like, not good, what yeah. was up with that yeah. guy, right? Um, and I, I have this sense that we are we are in a moment where there's a time to take advantage of that, and you can see people doing that in non-authentic ways, mm-hmm. and you can see people doing it in very authentic ways, and it creates camaraderie and love and movements and a fan base. I think that's powerful. I think I think people should lean into that. That's good advice, and it's hard. It's hard advice because it's like oh, yeah. be vulnerable, like be comfortable. I mean, take be comfortable taking a stand. But that's the world that in, we live in. In B two B marketing, yeah. yeah, that is right. Those those two things are magnets, you know, that are opposite <laughs> polarity, right? It just but it's all changed. I feel like that's like the thing that has changed. It's changed so much. Like I think about it as like. You know, for Boston is a big sports city. Sure, yeah, yeah. And I'll meet people, and they'll be like, "Oh, Boston sports, huh? What's happened to those socks?" And like, you know what? 
I'm not a big sports fan. I said it. It's like I. It's almost scary to admit here. I'm gonna say, and like, but for me, it ends up being these like companies, these people that I connect with, and it might be is that's where yeah. I spend my time. That's who I root for. That's what I think about. Like, there's like some small company that stands for something or has a product that I'm really excited about, or I think that's like a picture of the future, and that ends up being my sports. That's like the thing that I root for. Yes. And I feel like when in the world we live in, where there's basically infinite choice, you know, our entire culture. Yeah. It's like an internet culture now. There's no more like, oh, the weird thing you're into on the internet and like the rest of your life, mainstream media. It's like, no, it's all it's all the internet. Everything is the internet, right? Like, yeah. So you can have, that means that like the more focused it is, the more niche it is, um, there probably are a ton of people who care about it and because they're so interconnected, it can be 0.01% of the population, but that's 70 million people in the world, you know? Yep. And it's like, it's it's just, it's all upside down. It's all backwards. And so in that world, yeah, the, your B2B customers are also like, you know, they're watching fun stuff at night and they're doing those other things and they're looking for that combination of like information, entertainment that is on like that really specific topic. Yeah, and inspiration. Inspiration, yeah. Absolutely. I, I, I have seen these sorts of, um, this is personal pet peeve, I hate the, sort of terms used to describe individual generations, right? Whatever, baby boomer, Gen X, millennial, millennial Gen, Gen Z, Z, right? All Gen, that. What's the new one? I don't even know. There's one, right? Is there one? Are those people just being born? I feel like they're like sub five. Sub five, okay. Yeah. Uh, like the, every interface must be swipeable. Or you can talk to, you can always talk to Siri or Alexa. Just like, just like yelling out at night, like, hey, Siri. <laughs> Read me Good Night Moon Yeah, read again. me Good Night Moon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, right if that so, wasn't actually true in my home, then it, but it is. Like, the, <laughs> but the, anyway. We, we got one of the yeah, Alexas, yeah. and I refused to set it up. I was like, <laughs> I'm I not like a technology doomsdayist, but I don't trust that thing. Yeah. So anyway, uh, the, um, you know, the, the trends that you read about are, oh, millennials this, millennials that, right, whatever, and, and a big... A big one that I've seen the last 10 years has been uh, millennials and Gen Z, right? People born, whatever, after 1980 uh, want more purpose, more mission, uh, more values-driven cultures mm-hmm. in the places that they work They want for. to pick products that have values that they agree with and all that. Yeah, yes. generally speaking. I think consumer preference tends to be less strong than work preference, mm-hmm. but, uh, but both absolutely exist. And my, my sense is there's this performative level, uh, which is very inauthentic, right? Performative level of... Yeah, okay. You're saying like people, like brands that pretend to have values. Yeah, no offense to Nike, right? But like the Colin Kaepernick ad, to my mind, felt very performative. Okay. I thought it was risky enough to be interesting, right? Risky enough that I paid attention and watched it and thought highly of it, mm-hmm. but performative in that Nike is going to do absolutely nothing to stop supporting the people who blackballed him from the NFL, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, like you, I don't pay a ton of attention mm-hmm. to sports, but uh, I was a very big NFL fan, a very big watcher of the NFL until those events, right? Okay. And I, I mean, I freaking cheered against Colin Kaepernick every Sunday. I was a yeah. Seahawks fan, yeah. Seattle, yeah. right? Yeah. So I'm cheering against but him all the time. Push you away from the league, yeah. Yeah, but, but the way they treated him pushed me away from the league. And so I, I see... You know, those kinds of decisions being true to, I think, less generationally and more to people who care about that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I think it's a competitive advantage or disadvantage, Mm -hmm. right? If if you choose to embrace these kinds of things, whichever ones appeal to you and for reasons that you're truly passionate about, I think that you have an outsized ability to speak your mind on those things, to... Uh, put your money where your mouth is, to put your brand where your mouth is, and to benefit tremendously from that. Yeah, if it's real. If it's real, and it has resonance with your audience. Yeah, because then, I mean, the audience, they all know who each other are. Yes. And they're already connected on this. So if you really deliver on it, then the right people are going to find out. Yeah, I mean, I I remember when, so this was 2013, maybe 13 or 14, MozCon for the first time did uh, gender-neutral bathrooms and some more gender-inclusive terminology and a bunch of attempts around that type of stuff, which 
which now is being featured at more and more and more events, right? I, mm-hmm. I see it everywhere. The coffee shop I went to down the street from Wistia yes. right, has a, had a gender-neutral bathroom. But at the time was relatively forward-thinking, right? It was early days. And I, I cannot tell you the degree to which attendees, people who came to that event, took pictures of that bathroom from, from the outside, obviously. Um, <laughs> maybe some from the inside. Yeah, we're gonna hope mostly we, we don't know. But, yeah, yeah. But, but the ones they posted publicly yeah. certainly were from the outside, right? And there was this like, oh, I, I saw people on multiple sides of generally embracing um, you know, LGBTQ and non-binary uh, gender identifying folks uh, on multiple sides saying exactly the same thing. Well, we know where Moz stands. Yeah. You do, yeah. right? You know, you know where that brand Easily. stands. And yeah, I think with, I with think, one with one change. Yeah. With with one investment, yeah. you know where the brand stands. Uh, and I think that's I think that's a a powerful differentiator. And it certainly it certainly was for us. It was it was for us on culture internally, on hiring and recruiting, on uh, retention, on both the employee and on the customer side. Yeah. But I think it's also like it's a differentiator and you believe in it and it's real, which I, I is always the thing I go back to because like everyone can sniff out the fake stuff as you were just talking about. Yeah. And it's, but it is that thing of like, we live in a world where you have to take a stand. And if you're not taking a stand, that's your stand. <laughs> yeah. Right. Then, then you stand for a status quo. Yep. Right? Totally. Spark Toro. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you're spending your days, you're building something brand new, you're back, you're back at it. Um, what for those who don't know, what is SparkToro? Um, what can you do with it? What is the problem you're solving? Yeah, so we, Casey and I, had this belief that essentially marketing is getting overly concentrated in Google and Facebook, right? Essentially, marketers look at where should I go, reach my audience, and the answer was I don't really know, so I'll just throw dollars at Facebook and Google and leave the targeting up to them, and. I think that a lot of people are finding that very expensive. Not ineffective, but extraordinarily expensive. expensive. So expensive that many of them are not seeing a return on their investment. They're barely breaking even, uh, or they're getting very, very little margin. And the prices are going up. And the prices are going up because, you know, whatever, the VC and PE-backed companies are investing in all these spaces, and they don't care about profit. They just care about growth, right? So they're they're sucking a lot of the margin out of those ecosystems. As a result, uh, there's a ton of lacking investment in a bunch of places that Facebook and Google won't let you easily reach. And that includes uh, press and PR and uh, blogs and media websites. That includes podcasts. It includes uh, video like YouTube channels. It includes serialized content of every kind. Basically anything that's not an advertisement that you throw dollars against on one of these two platforms, or Amazon if you're in in e-commerce retail, is getting under-invested. And and SparkToro exists to help marketers find those channels, the channels and the individual players, where they can go spend either budget, advertising budget, or marketing investments like outreach and PR and relationship building and content and reach their audience through them. So, you know, as simple as can be, you and I, Chris, we decide, hey, we want to start a, a new lighting design company. And we know that most of the people who are going to be buying our, you know, fancy lighting, they are uh, interior designers and interior mm-hmm. decorators. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I don't know squat about that world. Yeah. I have no idea what they read or watch or listen to or who they follow or yeah. what publications they totally. read. Like, if you told me we have to go reach them, I'd be like, Puh. yeah. I guess I'll throw money at Google and Facebook, yeah. right? Yeah. The same thing that everyone else is doing. The same thing everyone else. So you can go to SparkToro and you can search uh, interior designer and you can get a list of social media profiles across, you know, whatever, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, et cetera, et cetera, that are well-followed, highly followed by people who describe themselves as interior designers. Uh, you can do the same for YouTube channels. You can do the same for podcasts. You can do the same for websites. And so then you can go and say, oh, instead of spending a bunch of money with Google, I wonder if I could pitch an editorial piece to this website, pitch this podcast about being a guest on there, sponsor this YouTube channel, 
whatever it is, right? And be a part of those content worlds uh, through those systems. Essentially just exposing the information that Google and Facebook already know, right? They know what affinities everyone has. Yeah. They just won't tell you. Yeah. So it's exposing that information. So when you are trying to build your audience, your customer base, like your following, yep. you have an idea of who the major players are. And as that's and constantly the minor changing. Players, yeah. And the minor players. Yeah. And the those are often the people who are ignored. Yeah. So they're more apt to listen. Um, exactly. That's awesome. Yeah. So essentially, you know, we get a list. If I do a search for interior designer, right, I'll see that. I don't actually know if this is the case, right? But it might be like Architecture Magazine. I'm not even sure if that's a thing, right? But oh, that might—that's a thing. Yeah. That's a thing. I'm sure. Right? It it might, is. Yeah. You know, that's followed by 38% of people, right? Their social channels followed by 38% of people. People who describe themselves who, as an interior designer, uh, right? And we have whatever 71,216 profiles in our database of people who describe themselves as interior designers and. Cool. You know, yada yada, and then you, you know, and then this next publication at thirty five percent and thirty two percent, right? And you go down those lists, cool. and essentially you can check those boxes and then build a list of, hey, these should be our campaigns targets for whatever we're we're doing. If Wistia is doing a launch for their product, like, hey, here are all the media publications that video production folks follow. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. everyone who says they're B two B marketer, B two B marketer. Type it in. Okay. Yep. Here are all the podcasts, Chris. You're going to be a guest on these five podcasts, right, over the next six weeks yep. and talk about the launch. Cool. There you go. That's awesome. And this seems like a pretty big data problem. <laughs> it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, you you know Casey, right? So yeah. He's, he's good at, uh, he likes that, at, yeah. at handling those types of issues. Yeah, so essentially what we do is we crawl both the web and social pages and then build these kind of mashed together profiles of individuals we don't search on uh, any personally identifiable information, right? We don't care what the names of any of these interior designers are, right? Okay. We just care, oh, we have 71,000 profiles that have said gotcha. that, that have in, interior designer in their bio or in their job title or description or whatever, right? When we crawled their LinkedIn page that's connected to their Twitter page, that's connected to their YouTube profile, that's connected to their Reddit profile, to their Medium profile, right? And so we... It's wild. Build yeah. those all up, right? Connect those up. And we only look at publicly available info, right? So it's just, all right, uh, what what brands does this profile follow? What have they linked to? What have gotcha. they tweeted? What have they shared? Okay, that's where they have affinity. Now we can do the kind of Venn diagram overlap of like, all right. That's awesome. Of the 71,000, how many? So we have about 75-ish million profiles right no, now. No big deal. I mean, it it sounds relatively small compared to like the billion people on Facebook, but it's enough of a sample set that oh, totally. kind of like it works like election polling, right? You know, if you get enough, you get enough, you know whatever you know what everyone else cares about. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Yeah. So today we've talked a lot about challenges, opportunities, like for a marketer today or a, you know a startup entrepreneur. Um, I don't know what other kind of entrepreneur there is. Like, I guess a you know an entrepreneur who comes I mean, into an existing they buy an yeah, existing yeah, yeah. business. There's all different types of entrepreneurs. There's entrepreneurs who like work inside yes, businesses yeah, and start yes. new oh, projects. Yes, yeah. yes. Entrepreneurs. Intra- yes. Uh, uh, I always hated that term. <laughs> okay, we've gone down a weird road. Um, what advice would you give somebody starting out and you said today, like they're trying to build their brand? Yeah. What what would you tell someone who's starting? What would you tell them to do? I think it very much depends on the sector that you're in and the audience that you're trying to reach. But in general, I am a huge fan of uh, identifying just one, one marketing tactic that you can recurring invest, invest in over and over again, steadily improve and derive value from. So that maybe the channel that works great for you is content and SEO. Maybe it is uh, video marketing. Maybe it is a podcast. Maybe it is conferences and events. Maybe it's uh, offline traditional advertising. Maybe it's pay-per-click. Whatever, uh, whatever it is, yeah. it is, right? As long as it is something that you can consistently invest in and see returns, you know that it'll reach your audience. You know that you have a message that resonates. You know you can do uniquely better than other people in your sector in that particular space. I think that a ton of early stage folks get overwhelmed by the number of channels they think they have to invest in. And they don't. Yeah. You can really kick butt with one, literally just one. So SparkToro is a, is a reasonable example of this, right? We started our new website 18 months ago. Granted, I had a social following from Moz, right, that I brought with me. But 
It's not like I had an email list to bring with me or any website traffic, but the site was registered, brand new, right? All this kind of stuff. So essentially, we're starting from scratch, and our, our one investment was, hey, I'm pretty good at blogging and then at sharing that out and at figuring out what resonates with marketers. So I'm going to play to my strength and we're going to build an email list off of that. And we put, put up a product page with a, if this product sounds interesting, yeah, you should sign, up, yeah. sign up. And we had you know, 15,000 people when we started our beta uh, back in July. That's, and that's, that's awesome. Well, 50,000 people on the, on the email list, right? And of those, 3,000 filled out the survey and we invited... Uh, about 300 of those to participate in the beta, but you know that we were able to create that excitement essentially yeah, and from only 18 months too. Yeah, 18 months. It was basically a few thousand folks were visiting. Maybe one to two thousand people would visit the site every day. A couple hundred of those would make their way to the product page. Small percent of those would put their email address in. Right. So it's just slow and iterative. Every day the list is getting bigger and bigger. Cool. It works. Rand. Thank you so much for being here. This is super fun. Chris, it's my pleasure. I, I love what you're building here. I'm super excited. Oh,